Now, if you had told me at any point other before today that I'd be teaching on Romans 11, the olive tree, on Easter, I'd say, oh, you've got to be crazy. Well, okay, you already know I'm crazy. So, yeah, I'm crazy. But actually, I am excited about this because I think you're going to find that the application of the olive tree in Romans 11 is very relevant uh, to not just Easter, but to our lives. And so let's turn your Bibles to Romans 11. This will be our next to the last lesson. Next week we'll wrap up uh, chapter 11 with the glorious, glorious climax that comes at the end of this chapter. But uh, today, take a look at the top of your notes. It says, an overview of the mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy in Romans 11. We looked last week at the phases of this mystery. And If you don't understand those phases or if you don't get in your mind, okay, God has partially rejected his people Israel. Because he's done that, we Gentiles get to celebrate Easter. We Gentiles get to have salvation by grace through faith without becoming Jewish, without being circumcised, without keeping all the sacrifices, without keeping the law, without losing our ethnic identity. We get to sit here today and worship our risen Lord, but that came at a price, not only to Christ, like we saw in the video, but it came at a price to the nation of Israel. And we need to keep that in mind. Their partial hardening has brought full salvation to us as Gentiles. But that third phase is the one that he's hammering home in Romans 11. It's the one that we should never forget as well, that though God has partially rejected Israel, someday... In the future, when Christ returns, the nation will see the one whom they have pierced coming in the clouds with us, the church, and they will cry out in repentance. The Antichrist will have them at the point of almost total extinction. Why? Because if the devil can, ex- can if anyone, whether it's uh, Hitler and social uh, Nazism, whatever it is, if you can ex- uh, bring to extinction the people of Israel, you've just overthrown God. And so the Antichrist, is, as a, in a sense, is going to have Israel on the ground with a blade at their, at their neck. The nation is going to be at the point of almost utter extinction. Christ is going to come. They're going to look up and say, we blew it. We believe in the one whom we have pierced, and at that moment there will be a national salvation of Israel. Not every single Jew alive, but the nation as a whole will turn to Christ. And when that happens, the millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ, the son of David, and riches and blessings that just the resurrection is the foretaste of are going to be brought in. Well, those were the phases. If you look in your notes, it says this. The phases of the mystery taught us that God has not rejected Israel forever. God has not rejected Israel forever. They have stumbled, but they have not fallen so that they cannot get up. Well, today what we want to do is move further into the heart of Romans 11, and we're going to look at the pictures of the mystery. And here's what you want to understand about the pictures of this mystery. They remind us that the remnant of believing Jews in the church are God's sovereign promise of more to come. God's sovereign promise of more to come in the future. All Israel will one day be saved as a nation. Look in your Bibles at Romans 11 
And look at verse 16. Here's the two pictures of the mystery. Teaching the same truth as last week, just doing it with two illustrations. Notice what it says in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So you've got two pictures there. One picture is a picture from baking, talking about a lump of dough, and, and you take that dough and you take a little piece of it as if you were making a, you know, a little a cake or a little pie or a little cookie, and you offer that up to God as a first fruit. And then there's a picture from gardening, and it talks about a root and branches. So what, what's the idea here? Well, just give me the, the overview. Here it is, the picture from baking. The small lump of dough is offered up as first, as first fruits. It pictures the remnant as a small part of a larger whole and promises more to come in the future. All he's saying is, he's taking an illustration. It's found in the book of Numbers. All sorts of Old Testament background. We won't get into that this morning. It's just simply the idea of first fruits. When the harvest would come, you would take the first harvest, the first fruits of that harvest, and you would offer it up to God and say, God, this is because of you. And because it's because of you, it's for you. And because it has the first part that came up, it represents the whole part. The whole part is from you. We're trusting you for the rest. It's all yours, but you give it for us to enjoy. That's the principle of the first fruits. Well, what Paul does in the book of Romans, he does it in Corinthians, when he would lead, he would go into a new area where no one knew Christ, and he would preach the gospel. And when someone would accept Christ, he would call them first fruits, the promise of more to come. He's saying, look, these first people that got saved, it's not because of anything I've done. It's because you saved them, Lord. I offer them up to you as praise and thanksgiving and as a promise that a greater harvest for the gospel is yet to come. Isn't that beautiful? So when a church planter plants a church, I'm telling you, the first people you're praying for are those first converts. And you disciple them and you grow in them. But the idea is there's more to come. There's more to come. That's all he's saying. He's saying, look, if God is saving Jews in the present, it's a promise of more to come. They're the first fruits. The Apostle Paul is a first fruit, a promise of more to come. So every time you meet a Jewish Christian, you want to say, I praise God for you. You are first fruits of the nation of Israel. There's a promise of more to come, and you're living proof of that. Isn't that cool? That's the beauty of the small lump of dough. Now, the second picture is from gardening, and notice what it says. Number two, the picture from gardening. The root in the branches picture God's sovereign purposes and salvation promises as the source of life. That's what the root is. God's sovereign purposes and saving promises for all peoples. Those are the branches, not the other way around. Now, here's what he's saying. Same idea, more to come. When you plant a seed, before you get that harvest, what first has to happen in the ground? What does it do? It sprouts, right? But it puts down roots. But everything that comes up, whatever, you know, I don't, you know that, that's fruit. See that? I don't know what that is, but that's fruit. Now, here's the point. If this root is good, fertilized, watered, and good, then what can you count on about everything that comes from that? 
going to be good. It's going to be good. And when these and when this sprouts up and, and a little bit shows up here, what do you know is going on down underneath the ground? There's growth. There's there's life. There's life coming up. And that's what he's saying. Now, he's moved from just more to come to saying the root is the source. As long as the root is good and as long as you're connected to the root, there's going to be life. There's going to be life. And so what he's saying is that this, this Jewish remnant, this little sprout, this first fruits that's coming up, it's coming because it's connected to God's salvation purposes and plan. That's the root. And as long as that root is good, there's going to be more, more to come. So that's the general idea. But as Paul often does, he gets excited about something. He goes on about it. See, you know, I, I, I share characteristics with a godly man. So he gets excited about the root. And he gets so excited about the root that he goes on for, I don't know how many, he goes from eight, 17 to verse 24. So let's take a look at it. 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off and you... Although, and, and, and he's speaking to Gentiles here, and it's very interesting, and you might want to put this in the margin of your Bible. Uh, from 17 through 24, the you is all singular. He's talking to us as individual Gentiles. So this is very personal. It's very applicational. Yes, it's hard to understand. Yes, it's bizarre because we're not olive growers around here, but it is directed to you as a Gentile believer. It says, But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant. I'd underline that. That's the point of this passage. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, if you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Don't get arrogant up here as a branch because you don't determine the growth of the root. The root determines the growth of you. You're dependent. Don't get arrogant. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And Paul says, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, second time he says that, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. There's two things that we don't often keep in mind. And when we don't, it's because we're proud, is what he's saying. Humble people keep in mind God's kindness and God's severity. He says, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you. Remember, that's individual to you here this morning, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. You could say in again, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these 
the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. And there's a lot of olive tree in there. There's a lot of branches and cutting off. And what's that all mean? I don't want to get lost in the olive tree this morning. But I've given you, there's a beautiful picture of an olive tree. They're, they're wonderful trees. They're trees with just some tremendous character. And you can go to the Garden of Gethsemane today in Jerusalem and you can touch a tree that was there when Jesus prayed in that garden. There's, there's, there's trees that are that old, thousands of years old, gnarled and crusted over. And, and often they will, they will uh, lose their fruit-bearing capacity. And when you do that, then the gardener comes in and, 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 and does things to bring fruitfulness to it again. Well, there's your picture. And I've taken all the the illustrations of these verses, and I try to identify you. Uh, people, uh, you know, they disagree over this. I'm just telling you, this is what I've studied out. This is where I'm at today. doesn't mean I won't be here tomorrow. I may come to a better understanding of it all. I'm open to your insights and wisdom. Well, no, I think it's this. Okay, let's look at the scriptures again. Let's identify it, but let's look at it. Up there in your right-hand corner, you got this wild olive tree. Those are the Gentile nations. They're wild. They, ha- they don't have a relationship with God. They're lost. They're unbelievers. We've studied them in the book of Romans. They're, they're unbelievers. That's the wild olive tree. Right there in the center with the picture, you got the cultivated olive tree. Cultivated means someone's caring for it. And the one who is caring for it is God. And what that tree, I believe, represents is God's saving purpose for his people. And we'll f- come to find out that includes both Jew and Gentile, for which we better be thankful because there's only one tree in which there is God's saving purposes, and that's the cultivated olive tree, okay? So we've got to get into that tree somehow or we're not going to be saved. So it's God's saving purposes. Now, over there on your left-hand side of your diagram, it says natural olive branches. That is the believing Jewish remnant. Those are the branches who are Jews, who believed in Christ. They're saved. They stay in the olive tree. But there's also natural olive branches that Paul talked about that were cut off. And they are the unbelieving Jewish nation. When they rejected Christ, God cut them out of his saving purposes and his saving plan. Those who rejected Christ were cut off. They were unfruitful. They don't belong on my olive tree. And so they were cut off. But in their place was grafted in, contrary to nature, Wild olive shoots. Now, you didn't do that. You didn't put a wild olive branch into a cultivated tree. Rather, you would take a cultivated branch and put it into a wild tree. All he's saying there is, and that doesn't bug us because we don't know what you're supposed to be doing in the first place, but it goes against nature. And that's because God always goes against nature because God is supernatural and God does what God does. And he doesn't save according to human reason. He picks the younger over the older. And he picks a Gentile over a religious person. I mean, God saves by grace, by sovereign grace. And so the wild olive shoots, he cuts off of the wild olive tree and puts it, contrary to nature, into the cultivated olive tree. Those are believing Gentiles. That's me and you, folks. That's me and you. Then, he says, in the future the natural branches can be grafted in again. Look, if God can do what's contrary to nature and take a wild olive branch and graft it into a cultivated tree, 
And that goes against nature, and he can do that and make it work. He can certainly take the natural branches, put them back in, and how much more is a natural branch going to be able to be grafted back in to the natural tree? And so in the future, that's going to be the the nation of Israel. Then notice there at the bottom, towards the bottom, he talks about the life-giving sap and the nourishing root. Well, I believe that represents God's saving blessings. When you're grafted into this tree, you're going to get the the life-saving sap. You're going to get the richness of the root, the juices flowing up to you. That's God's salvation blessings. Why? Because you're connected to God's saving purposes through belief in Christ. Then look on the other side. There's grafting in and there's cutting off. Well, who does that? The gardener does that. Well, who's the gardener of this cultivated tree? It's God. And when he cuts off, he judges us in eternal judgment for our unbelief. We're cut off. And when we believe, we either stay in that tree, if we're Jews, because we were ethnic Jews, we were born Jews to begin with, and we remain spiritual Jews by believing in Christ, Or, if we're Gentiles, we never were a part of that tree. When we believe in Jesus, he grafts us in. So, God's sovereign mercy and judgment. He talks about that in verse 22. He talks about kindness and severity. In this day and age, there's people that want to eliminate God's judgment. Everybody's going to get saved. That whole wild olive tree over there, everybody's saved. No, I'm sorry, there's one tree. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's God's sovereign judgment, but there's sovereign mercy. And the sovereign mercy is this. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're religious or you're pagan, no matter how far you are from God today, no matter how close you may think you are to salvation, you can be saved today. Because God's sovereign, he can show his mercy to you. That brings us to the root. What's the root? Well, here's what I think it is. I think it's God's sovereign election, which he's talked about in Romans 9, and God's saving promises, which he's talked about in Romans 10, that were made to Abraham and his seed. Look at verses 28 and 29 of Romans 11. We talked about this last week. Verses 28 and 29. It says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election... They're rooted in God's elective purposes. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't take back his unconditional election because it's unconditional. That's the root. As far as I can see, those verses tell us what the root is. Back in Genesis 12, God saw a pagan by the name of Abraham. Actually, his name was Abram at the time, Abram. And he was worshiping sun and moon and stars. He was a pagan. He was irreligious. I mean, he, 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 there was nothing in him that caused God to choose him except God's sovereign, unconditional election. And he said, Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation, the people of Israel. And through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. When he did that, That was the beginning of the root. And it went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Romans 9 tells us, well, how did he pick Isaac over Ishmael? Sovereign election. How did he pick Jacob over Esau? 
sovereign election. Before they had ever sinned or done anything good, bad, or the other, nothing in them, nothing he saw that they would do, he chose them, and he made his saving promises that through you, I'm going to save the nations of the world. That's the root. The life-giving sap is God's salvation blessings. And in, when we believe in Christ and the promises of Christ and the promises of God in Christ, as Gentiles, we get grafted in. And if you're a Jew and you are presented with the promises of God in Christ and you disbelieve, that's what happens. Cut off. Okay. There you go. Now, let me make a couple observations. I even have a picture there of how you can graft in. Those are two grafted olive branches into a gnarly old trunk of a tree. And you can see there uh, on your back page I have it. It's just pretty amazing how uh, life can be grafted into these trees. Let me make a couple com uh, observations. First of all, there's only one tree. Uh, God's saving purposes for his people. If you're not in that tree, you are lost. There's only one people of God. Though, look at number two, even though there's one tree, the branches maintain their ethnic diversity. There's wild branches and there's natural branches. Natural branches are Jews. Wild branches are us Gentiles. We come to Christ, I'm still a Gentile. And if you come to Christ as a Jew, you're still a Jew. And if you come as a Peruvian, you're still a Peruvian. If you come as an Argentinian, you're an Argentine. I think that's right. Is that right? Yeah, very good. Very good. You're Mexican, you're still Mexican. But we come by faith in Christ, so we're equal in coming to Christ, but we're diverse as a people. Kind of important to remember this church and our community, what we're trying to do. We're trying to reach diverse ethnic people. We reach them with one gospel, but when they come, we don't get puffy and proud and, and diverse and divisive and and exalt our culture or force our culture, we reunite around Christ. Okay, more on that. Number three, the, free, the three phases of the mystery are repeated again in this picture. There are natural branches that are cut off. That's the first phase of the mystery. There's wild branches grafted in. That's the second phase where Gentiles are getting saved. And then there's the future phase of the natural branches. So we haven't left what we learned last week of these three phases. They're all in there. Number four, the root in the tree is naturally Jewish. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. This root is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and God's promises to them. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. And by the way, he was Jewish. Listen, far from looking down, upon the Jewish people, far from ever being anti-Semitic, we should be people that understand salvation is of the Jews. And it's their tree that we have been grafted in. It's their Messiah that we celebrate His resurrection. He is theirs, and we are in it and have a part in Him by grace through faith. Amen? And then number five, divine sovereignty is emphasized without eliminating human responsibility. As you go through this, who's doing all the grafting? God. Who's doing the cutting away? God. Who planted the seed of the root? God. Who 
oversees the life-giving richness of the sap and makes things grow. God. God's sovereign grace in salvation. This is what we're celebrating this Resurrection Sunday. Yet, it doesn't eliminate human responsibility. Why do these natural branches get cut off? Because of unbelief. Why will they get grafted back in? Because of belief. Why do we wild branches get in on that olive tree salvation? Because of belief. So God is sovereign, but doesn't eliminate human responsibility. Paul's been consistent, Romans 9 through 11. All right, now, enough of that. What's this mean for you and I? And how's it relate to Resurrection Sunday? Here you go. The picture of the olive tree warns us of the pitfalls of spiritual pride. Three times in this passage, he says, warns us, don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's the application. Last week, we needed to know something. He said, don't be ignorant. Know about what I'm teaching you. Today, the application is, now don't get arrogant. Pride comes before a fall. We know, half of us know that. Pride comes before a fall. And that's in Proverbs 16, 18. Okay? Now, pride also comes because others fall. Okay? Sometimes, you know, we get proud, we're going to fall, is what he's saying. But sometimes what makes us more proud is we point at others and say, see? See, look at at them. I'm better than them. Uh Uh-oh, watch out. And that's what was happening in the church at Rome. What was happening in the church of Rome was the Gentile believers, who were the majority, were looking at unbelieving Jews and go, those dummies, they don't get it like I do. They don't get it. Man, I believe in Jesus. How can you be so dumb? You're Jewish and you don't believe in Jesus? I do, though. Aren't I special? That's what they were doing. And they were, and, and guess what? When you have that attitude to people outside the church, what happens inside the church? It seeps into our attitudes in the church. And so the Gentile believers were looking at the Jewish believers in the church and thinking, I'm spiritually superior to you. I knew nothing about God. I knew nothing. And, and yet I had the wisdom to choose Jesus. What took you so long? You know? What, what, what do you have to be proud of? I'm the one that really has a lot to be spiritually proud of. Well, I don't think that's too far from how we act towards unbelievers, is it? Listen, you get saved very long. In fact, I, I believe the longer you're saved, the more dangerous this can become. Is we begin to say, yeah, salvation's by grace, and you have to accept Jesus, and guess what? I did. I did. And guess what? You had the chance to, and you didn't. You know what that means? You're going to hell and I'm not. And there's an arrogance in that. And there's a self-satisfaction in that. There's There's an attitude that says, well, it's all by grace, but I chose grace. And suddenly we get focused on my decision to accept Christ and we exalt that. And we look at others and said, well, you, I shared the gospel with you. Dummy, couldn't you figure that out? I figured it out. I was only five and I figured it out. You know, sometimes we say that or I was this or I was that. I've shared it with you now twice. I may even share it with you a third time. But after that, I'm done because you know what? You don't have enough sense to choose Christ like I did. Now, I know none of us would say that. 
Well, I hope not, verbally. But let me ask you, just as I have to ask myself, is that our attitude towards our unsafe coworkers? Is that our attitude towards our unsafe friends and family? Perhaps is that the attitude that may have hindered us from inviting someone to Easter? Is that maybe our attitude that keeps us believing the myths about witnessing? Is it somehow thinking that, hey, what I got, I deserve because I chose Christ, and what they're getting, they deserve because they didn't choose Christ? And there's a a spiritual air of arrogance that separates us from those we're trying to witness to? I think it's a possibility. I think it's a possibility. Therefore, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, that's exactly what Paul says. Look at Romans Romans 11, verse 20. Notice the arrogance in verse 19. Then you will say, individual Gentile who's a believer, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Notice the I there. That is true, Paul says. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. Take heed. Take heed, lest anyone who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Here's what he's going to show us in this passage. He shows us four pitfalls. And I looked up this word because, you know, pitfall. What's a pitfall? It's literally what it is. It's a pit that you fall into. And it's a pit like if you watch Roadrunner cartoons or if you're a Gilligan Island fan or if you are, um, I'm trying to think of where else, uh, uh, the Three Stooges, all sorts of pitfalls. What it is, you dig a pit and then you cover it with uh, banana leaves. If you're on Gilligan's Island, you cover it with banana leaves. And then you try to trick the animal or your enemy to run over the banana leaves, which I always thought was funny because it was so evident there were banana leaves laying there, you know? And they would fall, and, and, and you would, it's a pitfall. You would run, here's the proud person. He would run, and what would happen? Falls into the pitfall. Pitfall. Pride comes before a fall. The thing is, Satan has all these pitfalls, spiritual. We're going to see four of them. And they're, they're all there in Romans 11. And so, let's see if we can identify with these. Watch out for these four spiritual pitfalls of spiritual pride. Number one, pitfall number one, spiritual pride is deceptive. Spiritual pride is deceptive. Would you agree? Because what's the thing about pride? The second you say, I'm humble, you're what? I'm humble. And guess what? You just lost your your humility, right? You're proud, okay? Now, notice what it says in verse 17 and 18. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. That is the Jewish people. If you are, remember this, I keep saying that. If you are, remember this. It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Here's the problem with spiritual pride. It deceives us into thinking we somehow deserve the spiritual blessings we have while others are less deserving. That's the first pitfall. It's deceptive. It deceives us into thinking 
all I have in Christ, I deserve it. And the longer you're saved, I believe the greater that temptation is. Because you've made more choices. You've sacrificed more. And along the way, you start thinking, I earned this. I deserve this. And those people that reject it, those unsaved friends of mine, they don't deserve it. And they're getting what they deserve, and I'm getting what I deserve. Ah! You just fell into the pit. You just ran over the banana leaves. You're down there in the pit with foolish Gilligan. You're down there believing, I deserve what I got. Remember, we don't support the root. The root supports us. Here's the problem. We get saved and we start thinking, hey, God ought to be thankful. You know, God ought to be thankful I'm on the team. And he doesn't have people like that on his team. He's got people like me that he can rely on, that he can depend on. Are you getting the picture? Hey, Resurrection Sunday. Not a Sunday. Not a Sunday to be saying, God, you ought to be thankful I'm here. It's a Sunday to be saying, God... I thank you. I thank you that you opened my eyes to your death, burial, and resurrection because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be saved this morning. You're the root. I'm dependent on you. You support my salvation. I don't support you in saving me. Good stuff. Number two, second pitfall. Spiritual pride is destructive. It's destructive. Because if you stay being deceived and thinking you deserve what you got while others don't, here's what ends up happening. Verses uh, 19 and 21, he says, Then you will say, Then you will say, Yeah, but branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Here's the principle. Spiritual pride causes us to make destructive comparisons between ourselves and others that tears them down in order to build us up. Notice what he says. Verse uh, verse, uh, 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. He's making a destructive comparison between unbelieving Jews and himself as a believer. Does that make sense? And so what he's saying is, look, I'm better than them because I believed. And I believed not only in Jesus, but in their Messiah. I believed in their Messiah. Now, what's the classic illustration of this? Luke 18. The Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee and the tax collector. Spiritual pride, destructive comparisons. The Pharisee comes... And he stands and he says out loud, God, you're lucky to have me because I'm so much better than that lousy sinner over there. And then he uses the I word. He says, I tithe, I say my prayers, I, you know, I, 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 aren't you lucky to have me instead of him? The sinner, he looks up stands afar off because he knows he doesn't deserve to come into the presence of God. He looks down because he knows he's not worthy to address God. And he says, God, he starts with God, not I. And he says, God, be merciful to me. I need you to do something for me because I can't do it for myself. Be merciful to me. And then he says the S word, a sinner. 
And Jesus says, who of these two men were declared righteous that day? It was the sinner. Because he didn't make the comparison to others. He made the comparison to a holy God. And he says, I don't measure up. The Pharisee compared himself to others and said, well, I do pretty good. I do, 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 do. And Jesus says, the gospel isn't what you do. It's what I've done. The issue is his faith in what God has done, not what we do for him. And may I say, it's faith in what he's done, not even your choosing of him. Listen, it's not your decision that saved you. It's the work of Christ. You just trust in what he has done. And so if you say, well, way back then I chose and therefore I'm saved. Well, you're, you're turning that into a work. It's because of what he did thousands of years before you ever chose him why you're saved, which is why we're celebrating Easter, folks. What he has done. Pitfall number three. Spiritual pride is deadly. Spiritual pride is deadly, or you could say damning. But we don't use such words anymore. Speak of eternal condemnation. Look at verses 21 through 22. He says, you ought to fear, and the reason you ought to fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who are fallen, but kindness to you, provided... You continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Those are strong words. And here's the principle. Spiritual pride tempts us to trade in our trust in God, to trust in our good works. And those good works may be our choice to believe in Christ. Listen, the second you transfer your trust from Christ to your choice to believe in Christ, you've you've just declared I'm not saved. When you put your trust and transfer it from what Christ has done to what you did to trust in Christ, and that's what you're trusting in, you've just switched from what he did to what you do. And it's a subtle shift. And it's one that most of us in this room must be careful and warned of. Must be warned of that. Now you say, does that mean I can lose my salvation? No, it doesn't. Because believers believe, but here's what believers believe. They believe in what Christ did for them, not what they do for Christ. Whether in the past, whether in the present, whether in the future, it's all of Christ. So here's the second point under that. It not only tempts us to trade our trust, but it leads us into unbelief in the eternal judgment of God. Here's what he's saying. Look, why were the Jews cut off? Because of what? Unbelief in Christ. So if we transfer our our trust from Christ to something we do, what are we showing? We're showing that we were never saved in the first place. We're trusting in ourselves. And that's why he judged his own people. Don't you think he's going to judge us equally? He is. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. And what is the will of my Father? That you would know me, trust in me. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, 
Uh, We have been reconciled to God if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. All I'm saying to you and all Paul is trying to say in this passage is if we're not careful, we may profess faith in Christ, but what we're really trusting in is our own choices, our own decisions, our own character, our own good works rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. So that brings pitfall number four, distorting. Spiritual pride is distorting. It's distorting. And here's what it causes us to do. And this is in verses 22 through 24. It causes us to distort God's mercy and his judgment. It distorts God's mercy and his judgment. And here's what he says in these verses. And you have to think through this. It distorts, spiritual pride distorts the judgment of God by forgetting that faith is in Christ. Salvation is by faith apart from works. See, what they were saying is, those Gentiles, they were becoming proud and they were saying, those Jews can't ever get back in. They were bad Jews. They can't get bad in. They were bad. And you know what they were forgetting? You were bad Gentiles before you got in. And if God forgave you, why wouldn't he forgive them if they repent and believe in me? Now, that's hope for everyone in this room, because I don't know where you're at. And I don't know where your family members are at, but some of them are deep in sin, deep in rebellion, and they have very hard hearts, and they're very proud of who they are, what they are, even if they name Jesus as their Savior. There's hope for them, because if they'll turn and put their faith in Him, He will save them. God's judgment is severe. But faith in Christ is greater. Spiritual pride forgets that. Here's the second thing. It distorts the mercy of God by forgetting the fear of Christ. I'm sorry, I should have said faith earlier. It distorts mercy of God by forgetting the fear of Christ. Salvation is not without any works. Here's what they were forgetting. Ha ha, I'm in. You're not. And I'm always going to be in. Some call it once saved, always saved. I can live any way I want. I can be arrogant. I can be unforgiving. I can, I can just say, nana, nana, boo-boo to you unbelieving Jews. I'm in the tree. I'm saved. Pardon the expression, to hell with the rest of you. And you know what he says to that kind of attitude? He says, you need to fear God. You need to have faith mixed with fear. Because though we are saved by faith, Faith changes our character and our conduct. And those who have been forgiven are forgiving. No ifs, ands, or buts. And those who have received abundant mercy, guess what? They pour it out on the undeserving. No ifs, ands, or buts. Yeah, but I don't want to. Then you better fear God. Because you have forgotten severity of God, and you have replaced replaced it with a distorted sense of His mercy. You see, it's all unnatural. It's not how we function, but it's how we function when we are in Christ. Amen? I can't do it unless I'm connected to the root. I can't do it unless I'm trusting in Him. Because if I'm trusting in me, I know what I'm going to do. It's going to be all mercy for me, all judgment for others, and I'm going to feel quite proud of myself. 
when in fact, all my sin is mine, all my salvation is his, and I should trust, 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 trust. Accept one another, brethren, accept one another, just as God in Christ has accepted you. Romans 15, accept one another, just as Christ has accepted you. Because we're all in this by His grace. And none of us deserve it. And if we got what we deserved, we'd all be in hell. But Christ is risen. Amen? Christ is risen. Not because we choose Him. Because He chose us. And we place our faith in Him. I end with that. Let's be thankful. Amen. Father, we come. And we are humbled. And we need further humbling. Because ultimately, God, you support us. We don't support you. We're in by faith, but it's a faith that you grant by your grace and your mercy in the gospel. And so I pray if there's anyone not here that's not saved, they would, not, they would understand that there's nothing they've done that isn't so great that God can't. And those who are saved here this morning, I pray that we would worship upstairs with thankful hearts. And with a humility that we would show that humility to one another, forgiving each other, accepting each other, loving each other, despite the cultural differences, despite the personality differences, despite the likes and dislikes, we would accept one another just as you have accepted us in Christ. With that, all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Christ is risen today.